Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Hello. Uh, this is The Scramble. Um, let me tell you what we're not covering today. We're not covering the DACA announcement, and I'll tell you why. First of all, everybody else is covering it. Um, and also, I think there's still kind of a fog of war problem there. I'm not really sure anybody quite understands what the administration is saying about DACA. So uh, that is still to come. I'll be on the wheelhouse tomorrow morning, Wednesday. It's a short week, and I'm sure we will be in better shape to talk about DACA then. Meanwhile, uh, in the second segment today, we're going to talk about our policy towards North and South Korea to the extent that a policy can be discerned, speaking of fog, from among the fog of tweets and threats and knee-jerk reactions, uh, what actually is happening and what should happen. What's an alternative to what's happening right now? Uh, In the final segment, we'll be guest-free. I'm going to just share a few thoughts. I don't know if I've ever done this before, but um, Steely Dan uh, was a very important been to me growing up and then they stayed important and I've continued to go to their concerts and become one of the pathetic dad rock worshippers um, of whom Donald Fagan was always so contemptuous but Walter uh, Becker the other half of Steely Dan died over the weekend I have a few things I want to say about that and some music I want to play for you too we're going to begin though uh, and as I say it's always interesting when somebody um, rates about subjects that you've covered on a local basis for a really long time uh, and I'm usually kind of excited to see that happen because I'm, I'm pretty sure I've lost all perspective. Uh, so I was excited when Alan Greenblatt, a writer I know who covers policy and politics for Governing Magazine um, and who is the co-author of a standard textbook on state and local governments, uh, wrote about Connecticut and Connecticut's fiscal problems for governing. Uh, and so uh, we asked Alan if he would join us today and kind of walk us through uh, his perceptions on this. So, Alan Greenblatt, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for not asking about DACA, North Korea, or Steely Dan. <laughs> all right. That's all. It's going to be a three-part question right at the end of this segment. Okay, fair enough. Um, so just to sort of begin at, uh, in a sort of, sort of uber-thematic way, and one of the arguments that you're making in the piece, and I think it's a pretty good one, is that Connecticut right now, one of the reasons that for the paradox of Connecticut's per capita wealth and terrible governmental fiscal problems has almost to do with the psychology of Connecticut as much as, much as anything else. This is uh, a state that's distrustful of the notion of, of county government, uh, chopped into 169 pieces, uh, and, and reluctant to change things to its own advantage. But I want you to elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, you know, it's one of our uh, the cliches of our time, the idea of disruption and institutions being challenged and having to change themselves or um, be forced to change forced to change from without. And um, nobody likes change, right? Nobody ever likes change. And certainly when you're talking about big institutions or something as large as a state, uh, the old cliche is, you know, it takes time to to turn the aircraft carrier around. Um, and you guys, I don't think, have even decided yet that you need to turn around. Um, and that was the impression I got. I talked to a lot of legislators. I got to speak with the governor and talk to people outside of the government as well. Um, and it seems like people in the policy community say, yeah, Connecticut is in trouble. I mean, I'm certainly not the first national reporter 
to write this year about, um, I, you know, there, there are articles in the Atlantic and Slate and publications like that saying what has gone wrong with Connecticut. And I think there's some recognition of it. And yet at the same time, you know, most people are still doing pretty well in Connecticut. Overall, it is the highest per capita uh, income state in the country. So the the need to change doesn't seem as pressing as it would in, you know, a place like Detroit or something like that. Right. So um, when you put the x-rays up on the projection screen and looked at the financial uh, problems at the government level in Connecticut, how bad did they look to you? Well, I mean, you don't have a budget yet, right? It was due on July 1st. And here we are picky, picky, picky. <laughs> picky. Um, so Budgets it, are overrated. Yeah, they're yeah they're overrated, except they're important, too. And, you know, it speaks to an underlying problem, which is there's not agreement about what to do, um, how much to tax and how much to spend and how much to cut. Um, and so some other states have had problems this year passing a budget. I think Pennsylvania and Wisconsin still don't have budgets. And in a sense, it's a temporary thing. But, you know, there's such different visions of where to go, um, whether to tax more, whether to uh, impose a lot of cuts on local government, you know, what to do. But it's, it, it, the, the money should be there in Connecticut to pass the budget, and yet it's not. And, you know, there's a lot of feelings, certainly on the Republican side, that the state has already taxed too much. The property tax rates are high at the local level, and that income tax rates are too high at the um, at the state level. And, uh, you know, under this governor, there have been both uh, tax increases and concessions from workers, and yet still, still you're not able to pass the budget. Right. So one thing I think you uncovered is that, just to continue with your uh, analogy, if in the past there were six people up on the bridge of the aircraft carrier who all wanted it to go west and maybe only three people saying, well, no, maybe we should turn it around and go east. And then suddenly it was more like five and four, maybe even almost five and five. Um, the people who'd been in the minority in the past would be saying, oh, no, this is our time. We really want to you know, see what we could do to force you to go in the direction that we like. And, and it does seem that the narrowing of the, the political ratio in Connecticut has contributed to the stalemate you're talking about. Well, I don't think there's any question. I mean, Democrats really have no votes to give. I mean, it's a tied Senate. Uh, it's a four-seat majority in the House. And so, you know, I think in the past, Democrats could work out a budget among themselves and um, not have to worry. Now the margins are so low, they can't afford to lose anybody. And that's, that's, that's the, the, you know, the holdup right now. They don't have enough votes within their own caucus to, um, to pass a budget. Uh, meanwhile, um, one of the things that you pointed out is that there's a, a rising tide nationwide of urbanization, that cities have been recast as very desirable uh, places for pe- people to live. Um, but the Connecticut really hasn't been able to, to join that. Some of that seems to be almost in our DNA, right? We, we're, we're the original green, leafy bedroom suburb, uh, the one that Pete Campbell took on Mad Men to get home from New York City. Uh, that's Connecticut, and we seem not to have turned that around. Right, and, you know, all those John Cheever stories about right. the people commuting by train into the city. I mean, that, that's always been the classic image of Connecticut, and it, it worked. And, you know, GE is uh, sort of a um, perfect symbol of both how things worked. You know, GE fled New York when it was seen as a crime-ridden uh, murder capital in, the, in, in, a, in a near bankrupt city in the 70s, and they moved. That's when GE moved to Connecticut. It wasn't all that long ago, really. Um, and now GE has moved to Boston, <clears throat> and Aetna is, is going to move as well. And, you know, these are kind of symbolic things, but they speak to 
speak to um, um, the, an issue where people seem to want to be in cities. You know, so many corporations are moving in cities. McDonald's and Kraft have moved from the suburbs of Illinois into Chicago. And, um, you know, NCR was this uh, Dayton, Ohio company that moved to Gwinnett County a decade ago, following trends to the southeast. Now they're moving right into uh, midtown Atlanta. So, um, you know, everybody seems to want to be in cities, and, and not necessarily cities, um, but urban-type environments. I, we may have already peaked with the um, the, re, the downtown revival. You know, as millennials are finally starting to have kids, we may see more of them wanting to live in suburbs for the schools but have some kind of walkable downtown center. Um, yeah, a, lot of, a lot of places are doing that where the suburbs are reinventing themselves. The old malls have been torn down and replaced by town centers. But anyway, that, that's, none of that is really happening in Connecticut. I mean, you have you don't have a city, whereas in Rhode Island, they could put all their bets on Providence because that is where almost all the state lives. Um, you know, you guys have Stanford and New Haven and, and, um, and Hartford and, and, you know, several cities that are pretty small, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's hard for the state to invest money into one urban center. I mean, obviously Hartford now has its own fiscal challenges as other cities in Connecticut have had. Anyway, the point is that you, you've had a suburban model that was successful and now is not what corporations or the most highly educated workers seem to want. Yeah, a couple of things about that. I mean, I think an important thing to note, and I've tried to note it, and it's there in your reporting too. I mean, Aetna and GE were highly publicized departures, um, although the actual body count was maybe smaller than people understood. It's not as Mm -hmm. though Aetna's leaving. But they weren't going to tax havens or anything like that. They were going to places where the tax structure, if anything, was going to be more arduous for them. I mean, maybe you can look at some of the exemptions or concessions that GE got in Boston. But, you know, another part of this, and this story is just breaking right now. But, you know, GE, uh, having been moved to Boston by Jeffrey Immelt, is now kind of backing away from some of this stuff. They're talking about uh, cutting corporate overhead. Then Flannery, the new CEO, says he wants to limit the size of the new Boston headquarters. And they may not be building as much or moving as many people as they even said. This is one of the things that companies do these days, Alan, too, which is they negotiate for the best deal possible. It's as if all 50 states were essentially gas stations and companies were cars looking around for the best price. Yeah, there's a lot of competition for tax incentives and so forth. But, you know, it's true what you say. GE was just going to move, uh, you know, the top executives to Boston and the bulk of the workers would stay um, in Fairfield. But, um, you know, at the same time, they are also moving their digital um, their technology headquarters to Atlanta. They're going to be right around the corner from NCR in an area called Tech Square in Atlanta, which is just the kind of thing that I'm talking about that people seem to like, where Georgia Tech has expanded its its uh, campus. It has all these research centers that is now have now attracted these corporations as well. So there's a little, um, you know, uh, cove of all these tech types at, at all levels, academia, research, corporate, um, all, all in one neighborhood and all tripping over each other. And that's what people like, you know, and that was the famous quote Immelt had, um, you know, he, he, he said, I, I don't want to be, um, uh, walk out my door and see a deer. I wanted to be challenged by an MIT graduate student. And so, you know, of course people in Connecticut resent that there are a lot of very highly educated, very talented people in Connecticut. And, you know, if GE had moved to a city in the first place in Connecticut, maybe it wouldn't be moving now. But uh, anyway, it's kind of emblematic of, 
you know, it is a trend that maybe will go away, uh, that, that people are not looking for the suburban landscape. And there's certainly, it's certainly not helpful also that, you know, your, your local government is so fragmented that West Hartford and East Hartford don't think of Hartford as their problem. Um, I mean, it's kind of an out, a lot of, a lot of regions used to have this debate, you know, 20 years ago, they thought they could be healthy even if the center city was dying and they found that that wasn't true. And I, I don't, I don't think that sense that, that you're, you're part of a region, whether it's the greater Hartford region or the greater New Haven region. I don't, I don't know if that psychology is there in your state. Right. Well, I mean, these two things are linked, too. Um, and, and as you say, East Hartford and West Hartford don't think of Hartford as their problem. They also don't think of Hartford as their asset, either. They just mm-hmm. think of something they don't want anything to do with. But as you pointed out, it, it is, it, I mean, a lot of people have been talking about how you could uh, lay a map of Houston across the same scale map of Connecticut. Connecticut and Houston aren't that different in terms of square mileage, but it would be very bizarre if somebody took some lines and cut Houston up into 169 tiny little units. That's what's happened here in Connecticut. Hartford is roughly 16 square miles. I mean, that's just crazy. And and in, in that 16 square miles, as you point out in your article, there's a lot of non-tax productive properties, a lot of government buildings and stuff like that. So it's a recipe for for uh, building a city that won't work. Right. Um, you know, uh, uh, Houston is is bigger than, I don't know, uh, <laughs> a, a, a third of the state. So, I mean, it is a huge, a huge city. But I think I made the point in the article that they had one emergency dispatch center and Connecticut has 111 police dispatch centers. Um, it's, it, you end up with a lot of extra government and, and fragmentation and... and and Connecticut had, you know, there, I've done so many s- stories in the last couple of years about states preempting cities and states blocking cities from doing things like having their own minimum wage increases or paid sick leave laws or this kind of thing. I mean, Connecticut um, has has sort of the opposite setup where the the localities have a lot of autonomy, and that that can be great in a lot of ways, but it does make it harder to have them do things collectively because what you're talking about. Uh, at the state level with the gas station um, idea, you know, that happens at the local level as well. Walmart is going to come into uh, 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 an area, and whether it's in east town or west town, almost doesn't matter to Walmart, but they'll they'll play those localities against each other. So that that kind of thing happens all the time, and it, it makes it harder for for the, the, the disparate local governments to, to see themselves as, you know, for planning... Uh, for economic development together or um, sharing resources or any of that kind of good stuff. Right. I mean, if you're going to have 169 different towns and a lot of them basically offering duplicate services, you're basically saying we found the most expensive way to deliver essential services, which is to just to have it down to this to, to these micro governments. Um, I mean, it, it, I, I think I wasn't sure whether that was true or not. I, I never thought of it before. But is Connecticut utterly unique in the lack of any county type regional government that consolidates services? No, I mean even Massachusetts doesn't have counties, but it's it's uh, you know it's it's unusual. And usually you would have in most states you do have a county where that at least for certain services forces cooperation. So you have a city and its suburbs or whatever a group of suburbs, group of rural communities. Uh, you have an overlaying local government that takes in more than just one town. And and you guys you guys 
lack that. And um, I don't know if counties would be a solution, but it's not going to happen anyway, so it doesn't really matter. Um, but but it does speak to the to the fragmentation there. Now, if that urbanization trend among millennials holds, I would say that New Haven is better poised than any other city in Connecticut to take advantage of it, and not just millennials. New Haven's actually become a retirement destination uh, for uh, upper middle class people. Um, it, it's uh, I've got friends who uh, are from the Bay Area who are coming to New Haven in September to take their second look at real estate there, because if you're priced out of the Bay Area or one of the comparable, you know, highly desirable locations, New Haven actually looks pretty good. But New Haven had the benefit of John DiStefano, who was mayor of New Haven for, I don't know, <laughs> most of my lifetime, it seemed like. Whereas, you know, urban leadership in some of the other cities hasn't really been maybe as strong. Luke Bronin is a highly, highly competent mayor. I would argue that he's the first highly competent mayor I've ever seen uh, in uh, in Hartford. Uh, two mayors ago, we had Eddie Perez, who just recently settled his criminal case. Um, so, you know, in New Haven, you've got Joe Gannon, who's the mayor, who is an ex-convict. Um, so you see kind of a theme running through all this a little bit. And and that's another problem, too, right? You've got to have cities that are managed by really, really good public servants. Right. You can have... Uh, you can have... Um, um bad leadership in any type of government there's no no question but i was just sort of thinking as you're talking about you know yale i forget now the name of the pharmaceutical company where you guys successfully bid against i think it was florida um there was some big company that was going to do an expansion and jeb bush when he was governor of florida was trying to get them and then rick scott was not as interested when he took over and you guys swooped in and got it and spent i don't know a quarter of a billion dollars luring this pharmaceutical company whose name escapes me now Is it, um... but they ended up at a suburban campus and it was you know that's dumb uh they should have been parked next door to uh, yale medical school and for that matter yukon's medical school maybe should have been moved there as well i mean uh, yukon has been rebuilt over the last 20 years maybe parts of it at least you know so many states have um moved parts of the main university campus uh, downtown, whether it's law school or the business school or some something else where it makes sense to put the kids down among among the businesses. Um, so, you know, that's kind of missed opportunity you get when you have a fragmented culture. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure there was attractive land that was easier to build on at the time for the pharmaceutical company, but that's that's where you want to you want to create these clusters so that then you have um, people saying, well, I can move to New Haven because I could get a job at Yale, but what is my wife going to do? You want something for the spouse. You want people to think, if it doesn't work out in this job, I can go across the street and work at the competitor. I mean, that that's one of the reasons people like clusters. Um, we're running out of time here, and I want to let you get out a prescription pad uh, and write us uh, um, some uh Alexion Pharmaceuticals prescriptions for Connecticut. Um, so, so what about that? I mean, towards the end of the article, you propose a few things. If uh, we were to make you governor by unanimous acclamation, uh, other than turning around and running screaming towards the border, what would you do? Well, it's easier. It's easy to be off the sidelines and say they should do X, Y, or Z. But um, you know, you sort of have. To I guess, you know, as a governor, I could convene people and say, what do we want to be? Somehow convince people we need to be something different. Um, that, you know, the, the, one of the things about Connecticut is for most people, things are great. 
Um, like I say, it's the richest per capita state. Um, in most areas, the schools are good and that, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and when you have 169 uh, cities and towns and things are good in 150 of them, it's going to be awfully hard to change. And so I guess I would just beat that drum saying, you know, you can't be successful if Hartford goes bankrupt in, in, in all the rest of it. Right. I mean, Luke Bronin has really tried to make that point. He's even done kind of a um, a goodwill tour around to the suburbs with that message of we are, really are all in this together, and there are lots of ways that that can be demonstrated. But there really is, that psychology is very difficult to overcome. I mean, people really do feel as though Old Lyme and Old Saybrook are completely different entities, could have about as much to do with each other as Luxembourg and Lesotho do. Um, and and I, I do think that that's a hard problem to overcome. And, and it, it's turning, it turns up in uh, the negotiations at the Capitol right now. Mm-hmm. It's perceived as a zero-sum game. Uh, if, we, if you get something, I'm going to lose something. Therefore, you, Hartford, are my, Simsbury's, enemy. Right. So what you have to do is take advantage of the problems. You have to say, you, you can't, uh, you know, it's a difficult position for leader, political leaders to say things are not working. You know, they, the people like being told that things are working. They don't like being told there's a problem. And, um, you know, especially in a state that's lurched from budget crisis to budget crisis, there's less credibility to say, now is the time to do something different. But that's what they have to do. They have to stop saying, well, look, GE is only sending executives. It's not that big a deal. They have to say, GE is fleeing. Aetna is fleeing. Something is wrong with our state. Here's what we need to do. You have to take advantage of the crisis, to use the Rahm Emanuel cliche, um, to, to force change. Right. I mean, I, I do feel as though one of the problems here, uh, I'll let you go in just a second, is that when you're having a fiscal crisis, when you can't even create a budget, uh, and, and by the way, not having a budget turns out to have all kinds of horrible ripple effects on all kinds of um, uh, of vulnerable populations, certainly di- people with disabilities, depending on all kinds of services that aren't even necessarily funded with no budget, to say nothing of the schools. Um, it, it's a real problem. At a moment like that, one of the things you can look at is say, well, you know, you were very slow to develop a transportation infrastructure that would make this a more attractive place. Millennials also like mass transit. They don't like traffic jams. They like to be able to get places really fast. Uh, Hartford could almost be a satellite of New York if you had high-speed rail that cut west across the state and got there fast. Um, but that's a hard, it's a hard time to find any money to do anything like transportation expansion when you're already basically running your aircraft carrier into the rocks. Yeah, that it is tough, but you know, you still—I don't know—remember how much Connecticut's budget is, but it's billions of dollars. I mean, you could find some money, and um, you know, they've tried to do that. They are trying to improve the rail service to yeah. to Hartford and uh, and New Haven and, and the rest. Um, so you know, you, that's that's time to rethink your priorities and not be like, well, we take last year's budget and see if we could find two percent here and five percent from that program. You say, what is it we want to be doing now, and really do rethink. And of course. The fact that there's no consensus makes it very difficult. I'm not saying it's easy, but, um, but you know, that's how you start turning the aircraft carrier. Yeah, I mean, I do feel as though one of the realities here is that we, we right now perceive ourselves 
in this moment of stalemate and stasis. Like we're just not going anywhere. Nothing's really happening. As you point out in your article, from a macroscopic point of view, Connecticut has still has quite a bit of wealth and, and quite a few resources. If it could come up with a unified strategy to act in its own behalf, it's kind of what Bronin keeps saying about Hartford, which is if he could just get the patient out of the ICU, he'd have he has the workings of a strapping, youthful, exciting city, but not while it's in a governmental fiscal crisis. And you could say the thing, same thing for the state. Fix the problem, fix the structural problem, then you actually probably have kind of a nice state to work with. Yeah, so it is tough, and it's a tough moment politically because, you know, Republicans smell blood. They're so close to majorities in both chambers, and, and um, you know, Governor Malloy has the lowest approval ratings of any Democratic governor in the country. Um, uh, Chris Christie and Sam Brambeck, I guess, are lower still. But anyway, um, you know, they, they, they feel like this could be their year to finally um, turn Connecticut red in 2018. That may or may not happen, obviously, but it's that's not a moment when compromise happens, when, when the out-party senses its, it's uh, chance has arrived. Right. Well, we're already red in the other sense, um, uh, at least being in the red. And yes, for Republicans, it might be like the dog chasing the ice cream truck. You're going to catch it one of these days. Be ready. Alan Greenblatt, uh, great to talk to you. Uh, people should read the article in Governing uh, about uh, Connecticut's problems, the paradox of its wealth and its fiscal problems. Uh, thanks again, Alan. We're going to take a little break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about North and South Korea. I guess it suits me to a tea. Connecticut is the place for me to be. We are back, and now it is time to talk about North and South Korea. As promised, joining us is Alexis Dudden, professor of history at UConn, of recently a Fulbright Fellow in South Korea. Uh, and she is prepared to help us understand what's happening right now to the extent that anyone can understand what's happening right now. Alexis Dudden, welcome to the show. Thank you for including me. Um, one, one thing that has been puzzling me for the last couple of months um, is, and I, I just don't literally don't know the answer to this question, is it just pure coincidence that North Korea's militarization and, and, and therefore defense threat uh, has risen to the level that it's risen to right at this moment when Donald Trump is our president? In other words, was this just a matter of their technology finally hitting where it needed to hit? And that's why suddenly we've got missiles flying over Japan and this notion of actual intercontinental range. Uh, or does it have something to do with the change in the diplomatic climate uh, between the West and, and North Korea? It certainly is terrible timing that Donald Trump has become president because I think it's possible to say that North Korea would be on course uh, had Hillary Clinton been president. That said, she would have had a diplomatic team in place. Uh, she likely would have um, doubled down a little bit further than previous administration policy. But at the same time, the careless uh, loose talk or the tweets in the middle of the night likely would not have been part of this really complicated scene. Right. So what we have now is a situation where uh, if you're just following the tweets, 
um, it's frightening for us, and it's got to be even more frightening for North, for South Korea. It seems as though one of the things that uh, President Trump has put completely at risk is the American relationship with South Korea. He's particularly on Twitter saying things like uh, talking is not the answer in dealing with North Korea, uh, which and he's pushing against the, the ideas of South Korean President Moon Jae-in to hold talks with the North. He's threatened to withdraw the United States from a, a free trade agreement with South Korea. Um, he seems not to be on the same page with his counterpoint, uh, counterpart in, North, in South Korea. It's absolutely baffling, especially given that he prides himself as a businessman. Uh, this week, he also apparently is going to cancel the South Korea-U.S. free trade agreement, which is entirely not in uh, the interest of the United States if we are seeking coordination uh, to work against the North Korean threat. And so all of this just has not just the appearance, but the reality of a person and a team that really doesn't know what it's gotten itself into and just assumes that by going ahead with bravado and bluster, it will scare the opponent, which is a completely ahistorical approach to this problem. I mean, the I, it's not just a matter of Donald Trump thinking that Korea used to be part of China, which it did not, but it's more that Donald Trump appears to think that this is all a problem that's just been landed in his uh, administration, and it must be the Obama administration's fault, without understanding that North Korea and the United States have technically been at war since 1953, and that this problem didn't just arise under Trump's watch, so it's really not just for him to, uh, you know, bully his way out of. North Korea has been a country longer than Algeria. It, it and South Korea were born in the immediate wake of the devastation of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So by that definition, an awareness of nuclear capability has informed both countries' sensibilities. The 1950 to 53 absolutely catastrophic civil war on Korea was always uh, surrounded by the threat of nuclear weapons being used then. Um, and so especially since North Korea has sort of gone it alone for the last several decades, having nuclear capability to them equaled sovereignty. And so they pushed ahead and continue to push ahead. Unfortunately, the world is now confronted by possibly the two most irresponsible leaders in world history uh, threatening one another. Um, if we did have an ambassador to South Korea, it might very well be Victor Cha, a scholar who's written an awful lot about this and who served uh, in the Bush administration. Um, one of the things that he's written about in the past is is the bilateral approach mm -hmm. to, to Asian relations by the U.S. compared to its multilateral approach more typically in the West, that, that the U.S. historically has kind of had a relationship with South Korea, a relationship with China, a relationship with Japan, as opposed to seeking multilateral agreements about stuff. It, it seems as if that has worked to the U.S.'s advantage under certain circumstances. But now it just seems like a recipe for chaos, right? There's no summit that's about to take place where a lot of people get together and try to figure out what to do. Exactly. And, uh, you know, Victor Chow's name first started being floated in June, and the absence of, of an American ambassador in South Korea right now is absolutely ridiculous. But it also, you know, it... it 
prevents us from doing precisely what Victor has long uh, been part of as a, as a member of the six-party talks, um, as an academic who promotes multilateral approaches, um, even trilateral approaches, you know, however many, but it, the two-pronged approach always is a, has a breaking point that's easier to achieve, and especially since the Trump administration seems so determined to have China be the solution to this crisis, um, while at once saying that we're going to cancel trade with China, also nonsensical. But, you know, it would be incumbent upon the American ambassador, potentially Ambassador Cha, to work with his counterparts in Beijing uh, to help bring this about. But we keep... We keep talking, but we don't seem to be offering anything, nor do we seem to recognize that if, in fact, we're going to ask for China's help, which is rather silly because nations don't, they only act in their own interests, but if we need China's help, we have to make it in China's interests to help us. And so without uh, diplomatic representation or anybody really offering diplomatic ideas, uh, it makes no sense that China would begin to help in this problem. It, one of the things that has occurred to me as I've read more about this is it just it must be horrible to be South Korea right now. I mean, not only are you under a constant threat, you know, of you know the triggering of any kind of military action just has devastating consequences for the whole country. But you're kind of being whipsawed also between, uh, at minimum, the U.S. and China, right? If the U.S. Yeah. gets uh, sort of South Korea to do something, China says, all right, we're not buying as many Hyundais. Uh, right. Right. And, and, and then the reverse, right? I mean, South Korea is in a horrible kind of pawn-like situation right now. Right. I mean, effectively, Donald Trump is making South Korea into what the North Koreans charge uh, South Korea to be, a puppet of the U.S. running dog, mad imperialists. Um, what's really deeply frustrating, particularly this year, is South Korea accomplished arguably the most important moment in its own history with the candlelight revolution, the peaceful overthrow of a democratically elected president who is currently in jail to usher in the current president, Moon Jae-in, um, who is a very capable leader for South Korea. And he also, you know, he has, a, a, he has diplomatic aspirations with North Korea because there is no military solution. And he knows that precisely because his people would be the first line of casualties. His country would be devastated. And so he has no choice but to argue for a diplomatic approach. That said, he's not weak. He's not an appeaser. Um, he was in special forces. Uh, he is not anti-American by any definition of the term. And so this should be the year that South Korea is able to really take charge of a new vision for all of Korea, because that's something that's also absent in the Trump administration's approach, which is the notion of a unified Korean peninsula has really trans it really morphed in the last several decades from the idea of, you know, a unified peninsula to something that now is more akin to a federated two-state system. I mean, there are very few people left who believe in the sort of 1970s or 1980s vision of one Korea anymore. And, you know, as, as upsetting as it may be for the older generation of, of people who long for one Korea again, younger Koreans, you know, by and large in their 20s and 30s, South Korea's economy is 45 times larger than North Korea's. The idea of just magically sharing all of that overnight doesn't occur to them. They face youth unemployment. Uh, they face, you know, difficult uh, life things of their own. And so they just 
don't want war, and they just don't want, as you say, to be whipsawed by American policies. They have a very different view of the alliance from, say, 60-year-olds. They view it in more transactional terms, and everything that Donald Trump's administration does further pushes away a country and people that has, it's not a natural ally, no, there are no natural allies, but a country that is heavily positively integrated with American ideas and ideals. Um, you know, I mean, the number of Koreans in the United States who are equally horrified when they hear this rhetoric, um, you know, it's a really narrow-minded approach to a long-term problem. Um, you know, I think at the beginning of our conversation, uh, you uh, talked about these two uniquely and remarkably irresponsible leaders. Um, Kim Jong-un is, I mean, we often refer to him as a madman. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I mean, in terms of what he's trying to do and, and the story that he's telling to his own people, I don't know, is he crazy like a fox? <laughs> he's ruthless, but he's not crazy at all. He's shrewd. He has demonstrated... Um, a determination to solidify his power when he came, uh, you know, when he followed in his father's footsteps and assumed control in April 2012, many people assumed, as often is American policy planning, that the country would collapse overnight, especially because he was so young, untested, and had been raised in boarding schools in Switzerland. Um, To the contrary, he has demonstrated nothing of the sort. Rather, he wants to secure power. He has fashioned himself both in hairstyle and demagoguery off of his grandfather, Kim Il-sung, who, you know, like him or not, these are not irrational individuals. Uh, Surrounded by countries with nuclear weapons, surrounded by legacies of deeply scarring Japanese imperialism, Kim Jong-un, for all of his completely counterproductive behavior, has secured uh, a population, in Pyongyang at least, of roughly two million people who could be considered loyalists. So just hoping he goes away isn't a solution. And then there's also the question of, you know, first he's, he's demonstrated, you know, he's willing to murder his uncle, he's willing to murder his half-brother, um, but he's also opening some markets, knowing that within Pyongyang, increasingly, people are going to want to buy stuff. People are going to want to have cell phones. So if you're lucky enough to be in the tight and small percentage of the population inner circle, you will be rewarded. Now, that doesn't make him a beneficent leader or an, an egalitarian, but it certainly makes just talking about toppling him a non-starter. Um, I have so many more questions I want to ask, and I'm running out of time here. So I guess maybe the question I'll ask is this. Um, I think if two years ago, I might, I might have this wrong, but I, I'm going to say that if you went up to a typical U.S. senator two years ago and said, you know, what's the biggest challenge di- diplomatically um, uh, in, uh, in Asia, uh, they would have said, containing China. Um, and, and I'm wondering, I, mean, did, I, I know we don't really have a foreign policy right now, but let's say we did have one. I, I feel as though it, w- in some ways our entire thinking hasn't, I mean, we've been caught by surprise, right? That our, our, our biggest challenge right now is not containing China anymore. Do we have a set of strategies that goes along with what is the biggest challenge right now? No, we don't. Um, you know, you're exactly right. Two years ago, war with China over the South China Sea was all anybody. Henry Kissinger was taking betting odds at this time. Um, but today, North Korea has demonstrated, with this most recent test, substantial capability. The, the test uh, on September 3rd was, you know, larger than the bombs, the destructive force of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. 
So this is a real crisis. This is something that has to be managed creatively. And what in all of this that is somewhat bewildering to me, and maybe it's just because I'm a historian, but this notion that, oh, well, you know, it's all about the missiles, it's all about the missiles, it's got to be made clear to the Trump administration that the North Koreans want a peace treaty. They would like to substitute the armistice of 1953 with a treaty that ends hostilities. Now, does that appease North Korea? I don't think so. I think what it does is define the borders. It defines the borders as North Korea, which they are contained within. And then it's really up to the North Korean people working with their surrounding countries and hopefully the United States to figure out how to move forward. But until it can be recognized as a country which comes legally through the peace treaty, then we're just in this state of hostility which bewilders the international community by lack of progress, by bellicosity, and now um, really substantial nervousness because Donald Trump has his finger on a button that could go really badly at 3 o'clock in the morning. All right. And on that cheery note, we're going to say goodbye to Alexis Dudden, <laughs> professor of history at UConn and the author of Troubled Apologies uh, Among... Oh, I just lost the title from my screen. See the title of your book because I'm going to screw Troubled it. Apologies <laughs> Among Japan, Korea, and the United States. Thank you so much. Recently Thank a you. Fulbright uh, Fellow in South Korea. We're going to come back. We'll talk about, well, kind of another sad, but in some ways cheery topic. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan, with help from me, Kion Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by Dennis Rodman. Our executive producer is Katie Talarski, and you can find all of our podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn. On tomorrow's show, who should be commemorated, and who's left out? And now, back to Colin. That guitar solo is by Walter Becker uh, on the uh, Steely Dan song, Bad Sneakers. It's actually um, something of a rarity uh, that is actually played by Walter Becker because one of the things that Steely Dan became famous for was hiring the most elite studio musicians they could find to create the sounds that they wanted. And they were not above or below, depending on how you looked at it, um, hiring 
six or seven elite guitar soloists in a row until they got the one that they wanted, ditching solos by well-known and, and famous guitarists because they just weren't up to these incredible standards that they had decided to set for themselves. Walter Becker died uh, over the weekend. I got the news. You know, the way you get news these days, you pick up your phone uh, from your bedside as you wake up and you look at Twitter. And I thought it was a hoax. I don't know why, but I thought it was fake news that Walter Becker had died. He's very much alive for me. Now, I want to say a couple of things. I'm doing this segment by myself. There is no guest here. Uh, I want to say a couple of things. I'm familiar with the concept of dad rock, all right? And dad rock is, for the most part, a term not approvingly used. It's about the kind of rock music that people like me, people my age, like to listen to. Um, I just want to say in my own defense that my uh, streaming service is full of playlists, full of work by young, exciting, relatively new artists. I don't have, and I can't stand to listen to classic rock radio stations. I had to beg the other person in the car on Saturday night not to play a classic rock radio station. I don't like that kind of thing. So that's my defense. Now here's me pleading guilty. Um, the last few times that Steely Dan has played here in Connecticut, I've been there in the audience. And Donald Fagan, the other half of Steely Dan, kind of famously said uh, on one occasion, I think it might have been to Tom Ashbrook, uh, that when he looks out into the audience, he feels like he should be yelling out bingo numbers. Um, so, yes, I am also that thing. I am part of this aging cohort of people who really love this group. But as whenever we would be, my college, my friends from college and I, because that's when I fell in love with Steely Dan, whenever uh, we would be there looking around the audience, we would also see young people because in some ways Steely Dan was a band far ahead of its time. And, and before, but before I get the, to that, I have to talk something and say something about the incredible orneriness of this band. I mean, that line about calling out bingo numbers is the kind of thing that Steely Dan basically said to its fans about the whole relationship between artist and consumer for almost the entire history of the band. The band was famous. And when I say the band, it's really these two guys and then anybody that they felt like hiring. Um, and in that way, by the way, they were a little bit ahead of their time. Yes, there were groups like the Beach Boys where eventually studio musicians like the Wrecking Crew took over the recording responsibilities of the band. But what you have now is many more artists who, who where you find out that the band name is just one person. You know, Iron and Wine is just one person. Uh, and then, then whoever else that person decides to hire. I would argue that Steely Dan kind of invented that notion. Um, but they also were famously uncooperative uh, about being rock stars. For example, at a certain point, because they be, were were rigorous in the studio and known for keeping uh, vocalists and backing musicians there for hours and hours and hours redoing takes that just weren't incredibly perfect. And because they couldn't recreate that in a live environment and they didn't like touring anyway and they didn't like meeting their fans, they just stopped for quite a period of time. Another thing that they would do was resume touring and refuse to play songs that they didn't like anymore. These tended to be the songs that were the most popular ones. So, so you'd have you'd have a Steely Dan concert where they would refuse to play Ricky Don't Lose That Number because they didn't think it, they didn't like it, basically. And they were tired of it. They were bored with it. And they didn't think it represented their best work. Um, and in a way, it didn't represent their best work, given the incredible what the jazz critic Ben Sidron called the incredible left turn uh, that Steely Dan took, particularly right around the time of the album Asia. Uh, and we can hear a little bit of, it, bit of it right now in the song Asia. This is actually an instrumental break in the middle of what is, I think, about an eight-minute song. Uh, and uh, here's what it sounds like. 
So you're hearing the jazz saxophonist Wayne Shorter and the incredible drummer Steve Gadd just creating these fills in the middle of the song. Um, well, uh, the last few times that I've seen Steely Dan, they were in a more cheerful mood. Walter Becker, the wonderful musician who died uh, this weekend, was now the guy talking to the audience. And I swear, at the last concert I went to, he just said at the beginning, you know, we're not the pretentious guys we used to be. We're going to play all the songs you really like. All the songs you want to hear, we're going to do them all. So don't worry, we're doing them all. And, and that's what they did. Uh, and the songs were great. Uh, it was a joy to hear them. Um, but when I got the news that he died uh, on Sunday, the first thing I wanted to hear was from his mostly overlooked solo album. There's a song called Surf and or Die. Um, and it's about... It's probably somebody that he really knew, a hang glider uh, who died. We're just going to at first uh, play you a little bit from the, uh, an early part of Surf and or Die. And your grandmother's number, well, we know it's here somewhere. Suits can't seem to find it now, she's losing control. So that hypothetical specter, your guilt edge sold. I just thought about that and the whole, this whole song is about death. Uh, when Walter Becker died, I had to listen to it a few times. I would recommend listening to it a few times if you've never heard it. It's just guitar and percussion. And at the end, as you'll hear now, you hear Tuvan throat singers or Tibetan chanting. I'm not, never been exactly sure what it was, but this is how I'd like to end today's show anyway with a, this song remembering Walter Becker at a time when he clearly was thinking uh, about death. I'm hoping that the music of Steely Dan keeps going and that Donald Fagan finds some way to tour with all this wonderful music. He certainly knows which musicians to call up. But uh, uh, let's take a minute here at the end of the show anyway to say goodbye to a, a, a good friend I never met, Walter Becker. Walter Becker.